This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The David Packman Show, Counterspin, The Majority Report, The Rachel Maddow Show, and The Tom Hartman Program. A long story short, uh, the world is melting, and it's melting faster than we thought it was, unfortunately. So we have some interesting data in a couple of different areas. Uh, one of the, the most important is that global carbon dioxide emissions in 2011 hit record highs. Uh, so you see uh, up 3.2%. Now, a lot of that is due to China. Actually, interestingly, America had, I think, 1.7% fewer emissions in 2011. Uh, Maybe that's why they were so mad at Obama. <laughs> like, we want more. We're trying, to, we're trying to get some stacks going here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, unfortunately, uh, Japan's emissions slightly up because they, they're not using as much nuclear energy, obviously, after the Fukushima problem. Um, so, so that's 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 obviously bad. We don't want global emissions to be going higher. Uh, also, there's some consequences of this. Uh, sea levels have been rising 60% faster than originally expected. Now, this is during the period of roughly uh, about 1990 to 2010. Uh, so you see 60% faster, and that continues now. So every year, it's rising worse than we, than we thought it was. We didn't think it was going well before. Right, um, and, and so that, to that point, I understand the scientists were wrong. Uh, exactly. Th they were not alarmist enough. Enough, yeah. right. Okay, they, they underestimated how quickly the oceans would rise. Now, Fox News is going to cut out him saying the scientists are wrong, so we shouldn't trust them anymore. <laughs> yeah. um, so we also have, uh, let's see, do you, uh, why don't we go to this, the permafrost, because it's very interesting. So right now, in certain areas of the world, in the north, there's, there's permafrost, where organic material is, is frozen into the ground. And if that melts it's going to release an insane amount of carbon dioxide. And the problem with that is that even if later on it was to refreeze, it doesn't bring the carbon dioxide back into the ground. And so that could help to accelerate uh, some of the, the warming that we're seeing, some of the climate change that we're seeing. Right. And I want to explain this because, look, the way that we are heating up the Earth is unnatural in the sense that it is man-made. It's because of the carbon emissions, etc. But there is also natural carbons. Yeah. And luckily, some of them are trapped underneath this permafrost in what is really an ancient forest to, to some yeah. degree, right? And so there's natural carbons in the world, but a lot of it is trapped in that permafrost. When it melts because of the human-made global warming, mm -hmm. it has a vicious cycle element to it where then the extra carbon dioxide is released. And obviously, as John pointed out, we can't put that genie back in the bottle, right? Yeah. So again, that is that was underestimated by the scientists. And now they're freaking out and going, wait a minute, if on top of the man-made global warming, all that carbon dioxide is released, we're in much bigger trouble than we thought. What the scientists did accurately was forecast temperature increases, and, and everything seems fairly consistent with their forecast in that regard. But all these sort of uh, ancillary, if you will, aspects of the, the warming do seem to exceed all the estimates. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, a, it, it's, it's disturbing. And what can be done? It, well. The CO2 emissions is really what can be done. I mean, that's really where the answer is. And it has to be addressed. And in, in the expanding industrialized world of China and, and, and in nations that are just sort of, and China's a, probably obviously the leader, really getting hip to the parade, the CO2 parade, <laughs> you gotta, they've got to find alternative energy. Well, here's what happened when they went to the last round of negotiations on, on carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, China and India said, well, we're waiting for the U.S. to lead. 
if the U.S. steps up, then you know we'll have to do something. We'll have to compromise, etc. When the U.S. didn't show up, Obama showed up on the last day and said, "Let's do a voluntary agreement." In other words, we don't have to do anything, right? Mm. Well. They were like, all right, well, we're not going to unilaterally say we're cutting our carbon emissions and put our economy uh, in a competitive disadvantage with the U.S., so that's it. We're not yeah. doing anything. And so one thing we can do is we can lead, and we can say, here's what we're doing, and let's work out negotiations where we agree and China agrees and India agrees, et cetera, on what we can do to limit this. If we don't, it is no exaggeration to say, we have an epic worldwide disaster headed towards our way. And yeah. there's no excuse for not leading now, because now there's not, you know, Obama's legacy can be served yes. by leading in this area. And there's no downside. Uh, I think it's very, very important during this next four years that he take the lead no, on this. The cap so, standards, I mean, he has led a little bit, at least in regard to that, but that's only a small portion of our total carbon dioxide output. That's true. So on, uh, on cars. Now, right after the election, what does Obama do? He says, oh, you know, all that stuff about protecting the environment? Yeah, I was kind of kidding. Okay, so uh, I, they are leasing off all of the available oil leases in the Gulf. All of it. All of it. Okay, so, and this is part of their all of the above strategy. Now, to be fair to Obama, he did say in the campaign that he loved oil and coal and more drilling, and he did. I mean, they had a debate about who was Mr. Coal and who was Mr. Oil during the debates, and Obama was saying, no, Romney doesn't love oil and coal as much as I do. And to prove that, he, they auctioned off the entire Gulf of Mexico oil reserves, in all. But here's the funny part. You know where they did, held the auction? The Superdome. Yeah. In New Orleans. You remember the Hurricane Katrina Superdome? And as a guy wrote in Daily Coast, without a hint of irony, right? Like, all right, so where can we so environmental disaster, which might kind of affect, as it has in the past, this exact area? Well, let's rub it in their face. Let's go to the Superdome in Louisiana and auction it all off. Yeah. So this and this disaster is. Uh, a freight train, and it's yeah. and it's headed in our direction. And, and by the way, for for the record, um, the uh, the ones responsible for the Deepwater Horizon BP, they were forced to sit on the sidelines for all of this, but only for a year. They can get back in the game. Yeah. You know, they're just they're on the injured reserve list. <laughs> the the ocean is fine now, right? Yeah, within a year, we'll have we'll environmental disaster in our history. Yeah, right. yeah. And we'll have solved climate change in a year anyway. Yeah. Can I make one final point on this? Um, specifically about the permafrost. It may seem odd that we're focusing on this, but I think that it's an example of a sort of phenomenon that should make you see climate change and our need to fix it in, in a whole different way. There are some problems that you cannot, you can't wait on. Like if your house is, is burning down, you can't do the dishes first because there might not be a house later. And so when you have things like permafrost where once it's out, it's just out. When you have things like the fact that the ocean heats up faster with the dark water of the ocean, which is one of the problems with, with so much ice melting, because that formerly some of that light was from the sun that was being reflected out, the solar radiation. But once it's gone, it now accelerates. It's nonlinear. It's not like it's a problem now, and it'll be a little bit more of a problem next year. At some point, there is a climate cliff that we can go off of. Fiscal cliff, fake. Climate cliff, quite real and quite dangerous. The climate cliff is a great way of That's phrasing true, it, John. And look, let me make uh, one of my usual jank predictions here. So they had a list in one of these articles of all the different cities by the water that are in serious yeah. peril because the water is rising much quicker than we expected. And there was a bunch of foreign cities, which, of course, since we're number one, we don't care about those. Uh, but it, New York and Miami were on the list. 
Now, New York is Rome. They will protect Rome under all conditions, right? They will build giant walls and dams and yeah. etc. But I keep thinking, man, I got to get down to Miami. I got to see it before it's gone. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and I lived there for a while, and I'm not even kidding. Like, I'm not saying it's going to happen next year or the next or the year after that. Although it is happening much quicker than we expected, yeah. but I would be shocked if in my lifetime we didn't lose at least South Beach. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Uh, you know, Miami there's, is large. There's obviously big portions of it that'll be fine, but the but South Beach is if you've ever been on it is almost in the water to begin with. Okay. It's got huge amounts of water on both sides. All the ocean has to do is rise a little bit, <laughs> okay? Mm -hmm. And so the way, as I read all these stories, I was like, oh, gone. It's gone, man. In our lifetimes, don't buy property on South Beach. <laughs> well, <laughs> buy like a mile in, because that will go up in value once it becomes beach. Yeah, that's true. It'll be oceanfront. <laughs> buy a mile in. <laughs> because what happens is, as the, the, the next step of all of this, that CO2, the release, the permafrost melt, all of it, additional CO2, it creates tremendous traps for more heat energy, right? Yeah. Which is what we're talking about. And then super hurricanes come in and they wipe out South Beach. That, and, and you say, well, really? I mean, is it? Yeah, really, because we've just seen it. You've just seen these storm surges now bigger than ever before. The, everything's getting bigger because the Earth is trying to balance all this heat energy. So you're exactly right. I mean, it, it's a bizarre notion to think, but it's possible that these, that's how it happens. The same yeah. way that New York suffered a, a, a super a super storm, uh, a super hurricane comes in and it wipes out much of the, the coastline of Florida. And it's not like Miami doesn't get hit with hurricanes. Already. <laughs> right? right. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, for people who can't visualize it, remember what Mark just said. Hurricane Sandy, the superstorm Sandy, you saw what happened in Staten Island, Brooklyn, all over New York, all the flooding, right? All the water going. And that's all storm surge. These are uh, on, 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 uh, at levels that they've never seen before. Well, well, what a coincidence. We're also seeing levels that they've never seen before in CO2 gases and permafrost melt and sea surface temperatures rising. Hmm, I wonder if it's all related. Yeah. Yeah, and, and looking at a few decades. Right, and if you do that kind of damage, institutional structural damage to South Beach at one point, they're not going to recover, right? If it's bad enough. People and it's only a matter of time before it gets bad enough. We're on the clock. And here's one thing you cannot stop the water. You told me that I don't look happy As if it's the only thing a person can be But you know what? Your laughter sounds wrong Your love bombs are sappy Sometimes I need some time alone To just be Lewis, how often do you think about Sweden's trash? Uh, never. Never. Okay, well, let's think about it now for a second, if okay. you will. I was reading about the Swedish trash situation, and only 4% of Swedish trash ever actually reaches a landfill, which is incredible. And because of Sweden's strict emission standards, which of course Republicans would be against because it's over-regulation and it hinders freedom, um, uh, 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 they also have, uh, they incinerate a lot of their trash, which is pretty interesting, and, and have since the 1980s. And they've actually reduced emissions, this is unbelievable, by some estimates as high as 99%. By some estimates, as low as ninety percent. 
since the 1980s. That's Still pretty impressive. It's incredible. And we live in a world where 70% of deep sea Arctic creatures are in contact with human trash, plastic bags, beer bottles, etc. You have to assume that that's going to affect creatures that are living very deep in the ocean and presumably would never be in contact with stuff like plastic bags and those rings from soda six-packs. No doubt. So in the U.S., the EPA says that there, there are about 250 million tons of trash generated. That was in 2010. About 34% was recycled. The recycling rate is quite low here in the U.S. Now, what's fascinating about what's going on in Sweden is that trash is producing so much of Sweden's energy because of the incineration standards that they need more. In other words, Sweden is so good at getting rid of trash that they're importing trash. Norway is now paying Sweden to take their trash. And this could actually start quite a trend, as you can imagine. Sweden is leading on waste management, and uh, uh, this, could, this could really be incredible. So let's talk about the U.S., right? I mean, we need more eco-friendly trash disposal here in the U.S. Now, Republicans will certainly be very, very against doing anything based on Swedish technology, because as we know, uh, we, we, uh, Europe is bad. Europe is very, very bad, even though Newt Gingrich lived in Europe, uh, in France for a while, and Mitt Romney speaks French, and he actually went to France to avoid going to the Vietnam War. Of course, it's very, very unpatriotic to be involved with Europe in any way. I wonder if this could change recycling as we know it, right? People could start hoarding trash and cashing it in rather than recycling it. I mean, th th we're talking about a, a fund to quote uh, Newt Gingrich, a fundamental paradigm shift on garbage. Right. Uh, another example in which uh, Europe or mainly Scandinavian countries are, you know, pioneering in something and the U.S. is falling behind. I mean, this could have been us. It's br it, it, we, if we had the energy president, which George W. Bush could have been, he, he wasn't, President Obama uh, could have been so far. He's done a couple of things as far as emission standards and fuel economy, but we really need a major thing here. The one thing I'm thinking about, though, Natan, is we do have to figure in the carbon footprint of transporting the trash to wherever it's going to be incinerated, right? If, if let's say, we were to outsource this to Sweden, I think it makes more sense to start doing this domestically. But we have to, don't we have to figure in the, the footprint of moving the trash around? Yeah, absolutely. That needs to be taken into account. But yeah, we need to look to countries like Sweden that are being innovative. You know, it's like a small country like Sweden that's well off financially can take the liberty in trying things like this. Uh, so it's good that they've taken a step forward. I agree. But this is what happens when everyone is on the same page. Everyone is like-minded over there. Your government is not uh, a cluster F, if you will, <laughs> of opposition. That's true, although the idea that there should be no dissenting views is also not something that I subscribe to. No, no, that's that's not what I'm suggesting. Good. Just I, I, I didn't think it was. However, I wanted to clarify yes. your clarification to make sure we had clarity. Thank you. <laughs> to, to take into consideration Phil Davison. Right, right. Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the 
show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. What's not to love about fracking could have been the headline of Planet Money host Adam Davidson's piece in the December 16th New York Times magazine. He cites an energy analyst who says the controversial method of drilling for natural gas will result in millions of new jobs, add 3% to our GDP, and mean trillions in additional tax revenue. It will be a gift from the heavens for the steel industry. He touches lightly on fracking's critics. Fracking, of course, is not universally embraced, as he puts it. With all the jobs being created and the profits to be made, Davidson asks, quote, Will environmental and health concerns have any chance against that juggernaut? Close quote. Since those issues hardly mattered to his piece, he obviously doesn't think much of them. And in an article about an intense new investment in a fossil fuel industry, there's not a word about climate change, despite the fact that the methane that fracking can release from the Earth is a super potent global warming gas. No, Davidson advises that it is time for anti-fracking environmentalists to, quote, start thinking like an economist, close quote. Well, in reality, actual economists like Helene Jorgensen have a different message. As her report for Food and Water Watch explained, there are serious questions about whether fracking has resulted in any significant economic boom, pointing out that the job creation record is exaggerated and that the costs, including lower property values and water and air pollution, can be substantial. Brian Fisher is uh, with the American Family Association. He's the head of it. He does a comical radio show that I believe seven people listen to. But from time to time, we play clips because they are amusing. Uh, he had a guest on from the Cornwall Alliance, which I believe has three and a half people in it. Uh, this guy's name is Calvin Beisner, and he has an interesting theory about oil, that it is a gift from God. Let's listen. Connect that to a biblical parable, the parable of the talents. Uh, you know, the the unfaithful steward, uh, the wicked and lazy steward, as as the master calls him, was the one who buried his talent in the ground and didn't do anything with it to multiply it. Uh, uh, that's essentially what those who say we need to stop using oil, coal, and natural gas are telling us to do: just leave those those resources buried in the ground rather than uh, pulling them out and multiplying their value for human benefit. I mean, can you believe they would do an affront to God like that? It's God wanted you to take the oil and coal and burn it and do the carbon emissions in the air so that he could destroy the planet through Armageddon? I don't know. But it is definitely an affront to God not to use the oil that he put onto the ground. But if he's not good enough, well, Brian Fisher is going to jump into the game as well. 
You know, I remember one time, Cal, this is just flashed into my head, a birthday party when I was when I was a young guy. I was probably, I don't know, six or something like that. And I opened up a, a, a birthday present that I didn't like. And and I said it right out, oh, I don't like those. You know, and it, and it just crushed, and, and the person that gave me the gift was there. You know, I just kind of blurted it out. I don't like those. And, you know, I just crushed that person. And, uh, you know, it was enormously insensitive of me to do that. And you think, well, that's kind of how we're treating God when he's given us these gifts of, of abundant and inexpensive uh, and effective fuel sources. Right. And, and we, we don't thank him for it and we don't use it. You know, you know, the scripture said it is, the, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search it out. Yeah. And so, so part of what God, you know, God's buried those treasures there because he loves to see us find them and, and put them to use. I love the idea of God, like, setting up this treasure hunt, like an Easter egg hunt. Okay, I'll bury the oil here and see if ExxonMobil can find it. Why, golly, they did. I love ExxonMobil. Oh, Chevron, some of my favorite folks. And you can't even believe these libs that want to stop them. Come on. Now, if that's true, and God also created the sun, I would imagine, and the wind, wouldn't he want us to use those as well? So I'm sure that these guys are going to be totally in favor of renewable energy, right? If you think he was giving us a gift with oil, wait till you get a load of the gift of the sun and the wind. By the way, there's one other gift that God gave us. Marijuana. I'm sure Brian Fisher and his guests totally agree that if God gives you a gift like that, it is in nature. He wants you to obviously take it and use it, right? In Italy. Now, I know that um, in this country, global warming is a hoax. But apparently in Italy, it's real. <laughs> As a report in The Guardian, floods that have devastated Italy over the past week could become even more severe in the future, threatening food production and destroying the country's natural beauty, exports warn. Yes. You know all those Italian experts with their cottage industries on making so much money off of uh, global warming. You know, in Italy, that's what all those scientists do. Big business over in Italy to be a uh, global warming alarmist. Oh, so much money, so much, uh, so much money in Italy in that business. In Tuscany, Huge swaths of farmland are underwater, prompting a warning from the region's governor, Enrico Rossi, that climate change is making us get used to ever more violent flooding. I don't know if my sister, <clears throat> who lives in the uh, Tuscany region, yeah, she works, uh, she works with wine. Yeah. Uh, can attest to this. But I am sure she can attest to how much money Enrico Rossi 
gets from the climate change hoaxers. In Venice, water levels were receding after the city's sixth worst flooding since records began in 1872. Leading Italian meteorologist Mario Giuliacci said the Mediterranean has warmed up by one Celsius to 1.5 Celsius in the last 20 years, meaning that Atlantic weather fronts passing over to absorb more vapor and more heat, which means more energy. And that means ever more violent storms and more rain when the fronts hit Italy. You know, it's amazing how these global warming hoaxers have gotten these Italian meteorologists on board. So the lower pressure brought by the storms was producing strong winds. The Sirocco wind which blew north up of the Adriatic this week, prompted the unexpected high water which swamped Venice. In 2010, 150,000 livestock were drowned by floods in the Veneto region. In 2009, 31 people were killed by floods and mudslides in Messina in Sicily, while six died last year with floods uh, surged through Genoa. This year, Sicily... Are you ready for this, folks? I know Venice floods. But this year, in Sicily, I know, not part of Venice, Sicily produced its first crop of bananas. While oil is now being made from olives grown in the foothill of the Alps. The Italian climate, with ever drier summers and violent rains in the winter, looks set to become more like North Africa than, say, France. This is all of our future. Not that we're all going to move to Italy. But this is happening across the globe. And uh, at one point, it'll become impossible for us to adapt and maintain our civilization. That's just the reality. I don't know if it's going to happen when my daughter is my age or when her daughter is my age, but it's unlikely to happen any further out from that. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. Okay, take a listen to this audio recording already in progress. As it flew along the 
that, that we believe to be from the cult. Right? In addition, there was some debris in the area, but it's unknown if those items were from the cult. Have you ever convened a conference call at work? You had to talk about some big important thing, and then you decided because it was so important, maybe you should rehearse what you were going to say before the call really started. That's what you were just listening to. A conference call rehearsal, or so the participants thought. Last night, as officials from Shell Oil and the U.S. Coast Guard were preparing to brief reporters on the Shell Oil rig that ran aground in Alaska this week, quote, a microphone to the room was briefly opened and any reporter on the line could hear those rehearsal remarks. One of the reporters on the line was Rich Maurer at the Anchorage Daily News. When he followed up with Shell about what the heck happened there, what was all that about, a Shell official blamed the error on the teleconference operator, who was a person in Australia, which is nice. Uh, what Shell accidentally revealed in that conference call is that they were finally able to land a team of experts on their beleaguered drilling rig in order to assess what kind of damage it has sustained. Shell lost control of this rig earlier this week. They were forced to evacuate their entire crew off of it. Ultimately, it slammed into an island off the Alaskan coast, which is where it is now sitting, along with its 150,000 gallons of fuel and oil. Shell officials say the rig does not appear to be badly damaged. In terms of those fuel tanks, quote, the tanks they looked at were mainly intact, but they did see one that was sucking and blowing a little bit. Sucking and blowing, it turns out, in this case, is not a good thing. It means that there may be a breach of those fuel tanks somewhere. The situation is far from settled tonight. We still don't know how this thing's going to end. It is still very much in process. But this latest oil industry accident is, of course, reigniting a debate in this country over whether or not oil companies have any idea what they are doing in this kind of a harsh environment and where, whether they can therefore be counted on to do this sort of drilling safely. Because of the history of safety issues here, Shell has been kind of an easy target for environmental groups. There is, in fact, an entire spoof website designed to look exactly like the official Shell website that does nothing but mock the oil company's poor safety record and its perceived contempt for mother nature. The true sign of great satire is that it is so close to reality that it ends up fooling people. And in this case, score one for the Shell Oil spoof site. Yesterday morning, a local NPR station in Seattle reported something off that website as if it were real. It was a purported Shell Oil spokesman saying, quote, No one has yet fully determined how to clean up an oil spill in pack ice or broken ice, but that's exactly the sort of challenge we love. Not a real spokesman, not a real comment. NPR, we feel your pain. I have totally fallen for stuff like this, too. It is a credit to how good the satire is that occasionally we will all fall for it. And it is a reflection of how bad things are for Shell right now. A spokesman for the spoof website offered this reaction to the Houston Chronicle today. Shell's ongoing incompetence has made our satire seem plausible. If you do satire for a living, that sort of result is in some ways a dream come true. It's a holy grail. It's also, in this case, the worst thing in the world which is still unfolding right before our eyes. We will keep you posted on this stranded rig. Well, nothing ever went quite exactly as we planned. Our ideas have no water, but we used them like a dam.
Climate change deniers always love to point to Koch brothers funded uh, research indicating that climate change doesn't exist. But what if you look at real peer-reviewed studies that are published in scientific journals? How many of those studies indicate that climate change is just a hoax? Well, uh, there's a gentleman by the name of James Lawrence Powell. He's with the National Science Board and he looked at 13,950 peer-reviewed climate articles between 1991 and 2012. Only 24 of them reject global warming, or to be specific, 0.17 of them, percent of them. So, you know, we, I used to say 98% of the world's scientists agree uh, that global warming is real and man-made. It turns out it's actually a little over 99.8% yeah. of at least the scientific studies. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And yet, on TV, you hear nearly 50-50. You know, you sure. get the Senator Inhofe's yep. coming on there. And, by the way, then you've got the Republicans who by, are now running the Science and Technology Committee. Literally, those same exact congressmen saying the media is too unbalanced on this and should give more weight to the people who don't believe in global That's warming. That's unbelievable to me, especially when you look at the scientific evidence. And also, you know, after the floods in New York, you would assume that it would really raise awareness. Okay, Hurricane Sandy, you know, all of this extreme weather. Let's have a real discussion about climate change. Well, only 69% of New Yorkers believe that Hurricane Sandy was in part caused by, or the extreme weather was caused by, uh, climate change, which amazes me. I mean, 69% is supposed to be a high number, but really, what about the rest? I mean, where do you? Why do you think this is happening to New York? Why do you think it's happening all over the country? Why do you think we're breaking record after record? We've gone over 300 months where we were a higher temperature than the, the global normal. average uh, from before. I mean, you can go on. July. What uh, year is it? You were born like after 1988. You've never experienced a month that is cooler than that average. No, I think it was earlier than that, 1980 yeah. or something like that. Mm -hmm. it, it, you've never experienced a month that was cooler than the global average. It's amazing. You know, July was the hottest month on record in history. <laughs> Can you put up that graphic one more time again? The one, the little pie chart. That I, so, so that's in 21 years there have been 24 rejected. So what those Republicans who lead the panel now mm -hmm. would say is that every year there's like one or two studies a year that says it every single year that denies climate change, <laughs> average, and yet the media continues to suggest that this is an open and shut case. And that chart also tells me one other thing. Uh, and so you, Anna asked why, right? Well, nobody could look at that chart. Nobody can look at these scientific studies and have a legitimate debate about it. I mean, it's almost, I don't want to use inflammatory analogies, but it's, it's a preposterous debate, mm -hmm. right? It, it is not a debate. So why does it happen? Of course it happens because of money in politics, because the oil companies get nearly $14 billion a year in subsidies, and they don't want regulation, and they want subsidies, and they want all these different things. and and they hate the EPA because it would add costs, they say, to what they do, et cetera, right? So we all know that. So they're actually winning. We're not doing anything about it. Mm -hmm. uh, cap and trade was defeated in Congress, uh, and uh, we hardly agree to anything during the different environmental uh, get-togethers, Kyoto, uh, Copenhagen, et cetera. Uh, and so to me, when I see that chart, put it up one more time, it, it's a perfect example of money in politics. That l tiny little slice of red is winning. Now, mm -hmm. do you think it's because of facts? Do you think it's because of democracy? Do you think it's because of our votes? Or do you think that slice of red is winning because they've got more money? Everybody knows the answer to that. So who are we kidding? We don't have a democracy. Our government's run by whoever's got more money.
as you know her. Money in politics is a regular theme for Jank on the Young Turks, as you just heard. He doesn't just talk about it, though. The Young Turks have taken action by creating a super PAC called Wolf PAC, with a laser-like focus on passing a 28th Amendment to the Constitution to ban the influence of big money in politics. Right now, they're holding a matching funds drive to support their efforts, and TYT is putting up $50,000 of its own money to match the donations to Wolf PAC dollar for dollar, from everyday citizens. Help support the cause by visiting wolf-pac.com to contribute today. Thanks a lot. Hi, Laura in Chicago. Hey, Laura, you wanted to talk about fracking? Hey. Yes, I do. I do. Thanks so much, Tom. Yeah, it's Anything Goes Friday, right? There you go. <laughs> so... Um, this is not the fiscal cliff, but this is the environmental cliff. We are facing an environmental cliff. Uh, everything I've read about global warming says that we have about five to seven years to turn the ship around, and then it's goodbye New York City and the East Coast. Yeah. And so we're really fighting hard here in Illinois for a moratorium on fracking, because fracking, uh, um, some of the studies have showed that fracking releases 9,000 times the amount of methane, a global greenhouse gas, than uh, they had estimated earlier, because about 50% of the wells will leak. Yeah. Some of them will leak right away, and then some of them will get old and the cement gets crusted and then they start leaking. But 50% of them will end up leaking. I think it's in within five years. Well, plus there's so leakage all, all along the way. Right. Plus there's leakage all around the way. That's exactly right. So there's this huge global greenhouse uh, release from fracking. Yeah. And, and methane is 18, are, per ti- 18 times, as I recall, 1,800% more uh, of a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So fracking is no better than burning coal. There is there. That's a lateral shift. Yeah. They're both just you know. I'm not. I, I'm not sure I would make that statement because if it's if it's producing the same amount of greenhouse gases, um, or even more greenhouse gases in the form of methane, um, the 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 upside of it if you want to call it that, or the flip side of that argument, is that methane in the atmosphere degrades down to carbon dioxide in a period of anywhere from 5 to 25 years um, because it's a fairly large organic molecule. It just breaks down to carbon dioxide eventually and, and thus becomes a much less potent greenhouse gas. And at the same time, when you're burning coal, you're releasing not just those, those greenhouse gases, but you're putting all this particulate matter into the, into the air, um, including mercury and other heavy metals and radioactive metals, and you're creating this, these, these oceans, these lakes of coal ash, which are radioactive and toxic and deadly, and, and uh, frankly, I think that there is much of, and, and many, in many ways, arguably a worse threat to environmental threat to the United States and health threat to the United States than nuclear waste. Well, the the deal is that fracking brings up radioactive waste too. The flowback right. in the water, the millions of gallons of water that they're putting down there, fifty percent of it comes back, and half of that is radioactive as well. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's got a lot of radon in, in particular. I I don't think Tom. I honestly do not think we can judge those. That's like that's yeah. like trying to. Um, 
you know, compare apples with oranges. Well, it's it's kind of Laura like saying it's it's kind of like saying you know which is worse, being stabbed to death with a knife or being shot to death with a twenty two. And you know, in either case, it's like, well, hey, I'd rather not die. You know, Uh, what we need to be doing is instead of you know comparing fracking to burning coal, we need to be comparing both of them to putting up solar panels on the roof of every house in America, decentralizing our power systems, building smart grids to to balance that power. That's being generated, putting wind farms and 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 windmills in areas where there's a lot of wind, putting wave, uh, you know, water gather or electric gathering stations off the coasts. I mean, you know, we've got and 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 we've got large geothermal areas in the United States as well, where we can we can do like Iceland. I mean, Iceland, ninety eight percent of all their electricity and all their heat is coming geothermal. It's coming out of the volcano that that island sits on, and we could be doing that same thing. They're doing it increasingly in Hawaii now. And it's just crazy that we're not. Last week was a short week for us. I was finishing up my vacation, so I was only here for three days last week. But on all three of those days, we covered a strange story involving a big oil rig in Alaska. Uh, Specifically right here in Alaska, a tiny island off the southern coast of the state that's home to a vibrant fishing community, a number of endangered sea mammals, and as of last week, this stranded shell oil rig that was threatening to despoil the entire region. When we last left our stranded, beached $300 million shell rig full of 150,000 gallons of diesel fuel, oil, and toxic hydraulic fluids, it was stuck on these rocks alongside one of Alaska's most ecologically sensitive areas. It has since been towed away to a nearby harbor, where it's now being inspected by a team of experts, including the Coast Guard. But something interesting has developed as this story has gone on. What was going on when that shell rig got stuck in the first place is that they were trying to move it. They're trying to tow it from the area where it had been drilling near the Aleutian Islands back to Seattle, Washington. They ended up having a really hard time towing it because they ran into bad weather. The ship that was towing it lost all its engines, ultimately lost its connection to the rig in the process. That ship tried four more times to hook up to the rig, but they were unable to reestablish a connection. They brought in a second vessel to try to help, but that attempt had to be aborted as well because of really bad weather. After being left adrift, it was that shell rig that finally slammed into the nearby island, threatening everything around it. But why were they trying to tow that rig when they did? What was the rush? What Shell says is that they did it then because the weather forecast looked so good. They said there was a two-week window where the weather was going to be good enough to tow it. Turns out that does not appear to be the case. We have now obtained a letter exclusively that has just been sent to the president of Shell from the office of Congressman Ed Markey. Ed Markey is likely to be the Democratic nominee for John Kerry's Senate seat, but for now, he's the top Democrat in the House on energy issues. And in this letter, Congressman Markey writes, quote, Conversations with the Alaska Office of the National Weather Service don't back up Shell's claims regarding the weather forecast. While a Shell official cited a two-week window of good weather, National Weather Service marine forecasts in Alaska only extend for five days, not two weeks. Shell's rig operations began on December 21st, but according to Congressman Markey, Shell doesn't appear to have consulted with the Weather Service at all after mid-November. 
If they had been in touch with the Weather Service, they would have learned that what had actually been forecast for the end of December was winds reaching 25 knots and seas in excess of 20 feet. So this is weird, right? Shell saying that they only moved this rig because of a two-week window of good weather. But the National Weather Service doesn't even give two-week windows for that area. And what they ultimately did forecast was the exact type of horribly bad weather that Shell catastrophically ran into. So again, what explains Shell's ultimately catastrophic rush to move that rig when they did? Well, in this letter, Congressman Markey raises another potentially explosive issue. He says, quote, It does appear that Shell could have been exposed to potential state tax liability on the rig had it remained in the state on January 1st. Shell could have potentially been exposed to state tax liability on the rig in excess of $6 million. So you got that? If Shell Shell did not get their rig across the state border by January 1st, they would have been on the hook for $6 million in state taxes. January 1st, that's when they needed to get their rig out of Alaska. The rig ultimately ran aground on December 31st. So Shell says we only moved the rig when we did because the weather looked so good. The weather did not look good. And oh, by the way, had they not moved the rig when they did, that would have been $6 million in taxes, please. Congressman Markey is now demanding that Shell provide answers to the set of circumstances, which he describes as, quote, profoundly troubling. Ed Markey had previously demanded documents from Shell laying out the company's contingency plans for this ultimately disastrous operation. The deadline to provide those documents expired today. Shell, apparently, we have now learned, has asked for an extension until Monday because they have been focusing on recovery issues. Just the engineering aspects of this story, the failure upon failure upon failure that led to this beaching of this giant rig in unspoiled Alaskan wilderness, just the engineering aspects of this story started off really weird. But now the political aspects, the corporate intrigue aspects of it, are getting weirder and weirder all the time. We have contacted Shell to try to get their response to these allegations. So far we have not heard back, but we promise we will keep you posted and we will keep bugging them. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Congratulations, America. You've broken a new record. So, you know, the Republicans will be like, we're number one. We knew it. We knew it. Uh, what's the record? Uh, warmest year on record uh, here in the United States, in the 48 uh, contiguous U.S. states. In fact, here, let me show you a chart. Uh, you see the top six here uh, of the highest years on record. On average temperature, that's in Fahrenheit. And you see the other ones, and then you see 55.3 for 2012. Uh, look, before the previous two hottest years were separated by point. 01 degrees. But this year, we took over a one degree jump. That's a hundred times larger jump. 
gee, I wonder if there's climate change going on. I, I Look, 2012 felt like we hit the tipping point in so many different ways. Now, look, you can look at that list and say, hey, wait, some of the years are from 1921, etc. But when you, the other thing you might have noticed is that four out of the six hottest years we have ever had in history are from 1998 on. Hmm, gee, I wonder if there's a trend here. And in fact, we broke so many different records. One of them was the warmest spring on record as well. And in that, do you know that over the 20th century average, how much higher were we this year than the 20th century average for springs? No, one degree was a huge difference, mm -hmm. right, for overall? 5.2 degrees warmer than the 20th century average. Jesus. Okay, that's exactly right. Okay, it gets worse. We broke th over 34,000 high temperature records or tied them this year. 34,000. Now look, you break records all the time. For example, as you can see, we did over 6,600 daily record low temperatures as well. But the thing is, the ratio in a year, first of all, it's not, the numbers are not supposed to be this high. Number two, the ratio is supposed to be about one to one. In an average year, in fact, that's how they've been for a long time. Last year, the ratio was 5 to 1 in terms of hot records as opposed to cold records. We're getting warmer. We also had records in droughts. We had records in wildfires. And let me show you one last uh, chart here. This is uh, temperatures again. Look at this. This is from uh, 1895 on, and uh, it's in Fahrenheit. And as you can see... 2012 jumps way up. Okay, now look, if it goes back to being cooler, you could say, hey, it's a random fluctuation and that happens. But as we've shown you over and over again, these are not random fluctuations. It keeps getting hotter and hotter. And 2012, it looks like we jumped a shark. And as I was reading this stuff, I was thinking, What's it going to be like next year? What's it going to be like in 10 years? Well, it's going to continue to get worse. And as it continues to get worse, we're going to continue to have certain media outlets claim that climate change isn't happening. Or if they concede that it is happening, they will argue that it is not man-made and there's nothing we can do about it, right? And it's all because we want to protect uh, big businesses like oil and coal in the country. But there's another element of it that I, I think that we don't emphasize enough, and it's the fact that everyday average Americans do not want to change their lifestyle. Okay, to actually make an impact on climate change in this country, we would have to, you know, scale back significantly. And many people are not willing to do that. And also other countries have to scale back. And it's really difficult as, you know, a world leader to go to other countries and say, yeah, you're being a little gluttonous. Uh, you're being a little excessive. You need to scale it back a little bit. When we're the leaders in... in uh, over excessiveness. I know, you should change your light bulbs, etc. But really, the big change is going to come from government rules. That's just the reality, okay? And we've got huge companies who are make a profit off of the old rules. So they're not going to want to change. But you mentioned the media, and the media is enormously telling. In fact, I want to go to the next set of graphics on this, because when you look at the media, as Media Matters has done, and how much they covered things, they looked at it in terms of the Sunday talk shows, which set a lot of the agenda for the country, and the nightly news. And you can see in both of those charts, uh, well, in 2009, there was decent coverage of uh, global warming. They drops off dramatically in 2010, and 2011, and 2012. Now, in nightly news, actually, because of all the disasters, it picked up a little bit. So nightly news did significantly better than the Sunday talk shows. Let me give you facts about the Sunday talk shows that are amazing. 
Sunday talk shows spent less than eight minutes on climate change the whole year. Eight minutes. ABC's This Week was the best. They did over five minutes themselves. Wow. NBC's Meet the Press covered it the least. They just had one six-second mention. What? I don't even know how you do a six-second mention. What I was, that's what I was wondering. I mean, they probably were like reading someone's quote and it mentioned climate change. and It had nothing to do with the story at hand. Funny you mention that because I'm going to get the quote second. But I get literally like six seconds like, oh, by the way, global warming's happening. Anyway, back to tax cuts, right? So... Now, when it comes to the nightly news coverage, again, a little bit better. Uh, we had uh, nightly news shows devoted just under an hour to climate change, which is still not a lot, but it's up from 38 minutes in 2011, partly because of the disasters. And uh, NBC nightly news coverage, by the way, was, again, the worst. And they uh, covered it only 17 minutes, okay? Interesting that NBC is the worst in both categories. So, who did the Sunday talk shows quote or talk to about climate change? This is the one I love. 54% of the time it was media figures, you know, pundits, etc., writers. 31% of the time it was Republicans, 15% of the time it was other. The, the two facts that I love here, they never, not once, quoted a scientist. <laughs> not once. And if you're noticing and you're looking at that chart carefully, you're like, wait, the politicians, it says 31% politicians. But it says in the corner there, Republicans, 100%. What does that mean? Every time they talked about global warming, they talked to a Republican. Every single time in the year 2012, when the Sunday talk shows covered global warming, they talked to a Republican. They never talked to a Democrat, and they never quoted a scientist. Well, I'm sure they challenged the Republicans, right? Oh, of course, right. By the way, uh, only 11% of the coverage implied the scientists, uh, or implied the scientists have an agreement on global warming, that they largely agree. Only 11% of the time, that's the reality. 99.8% of the scientists agree on global warming. It was only mentioned 11%. And here comes one, another one of my favorites. 44% failed to correct a guess who questioned the science. So if you think about that, they only talked to 100% of the time about two Republicans about global warming. And by a 4 to 1 margin, they never questioned them. So what does the average American hear if they're trying to get information about politics in these talk shows? By a four-to-one margin, they get people questioning climate change with no response whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And they don't hear from a single scientist. That's amazing. And that's exactly how the American people get duped. So if you're not from this country and you're wondering, how come they don't do anything about climate change? How come they don't understand the urgency? That's because our TV stations decided not to tell them. So they have no sense of how bad the urgency is. They never even heard from a scientist. All of 2012, in the midst of record-breaking temperatures and droughts and fires, etc., hottest month ever was July of 2012 in history for the United States. Not a peep from our political pundits. Gee, I wonder if they're working with the establishment to make sure that there is no change. I can't quite tell.
2012, the hottest year on record in the United States. Usually the temperature differences from year to year are measured in fractions of a degree. Last year though, the 55.3 degree average demolished the previous record set in 1998 by a full degree Fahrenheit. If this doesn't sound impressive, let's look at the number of record highs versus the number of record lows. Over 34,000 record high temperatures set across the country in 2012 compared to only 6,600 record lows, according to a count maintained by meteorologist from the Weather Channel, Guy Walton. Uh, the ratio used to be in balance as recently as the 1970s, where each year there would be about the same number of new highs set as new lows. However, it's been completely out of whack, particularly in the last um, in the last year. What do you think of that? Is that when you hear about that, do you say we need to think of uh, some kind of explanation that has nothing to do with climate change and the effects of human beings on this planet, or do you say there's something going on here? I think I, I my views fit with the vast majority of the scientific views on this that we are causing. Chances are we are causing some type of change. Scientists say that natural variability probably did play a role in the extreme heat and drought of the last year. However, part of it is not due to that. Uh, part of it is due to greenhouse gases and, and what is going on here. People seem to think that in order to curb man-made man climate change, we need to kind of go back to the Stone Age or something like that. And that's really not the case. There's a, a, some interesting studies done. And one says that estimates are that it would cost about 4% of worldwide GDP to fully tackle climate change. Now, that's a staggering amount of money. I'm not denying that 4% of world GDP is staggering. But what are we so afraid of, right? I mean, we're not going to be going back to the Stone Age. Technology now has ways of really tackling what we think are the biggest factors in man-made climate change. And uh, it's really, I, I think it comes down to the media. If mainstream media seriously start taking the climate change narrative as something that is not, well, on the one hand, 99% of scientists say this, and on the other hand, 1% of scientists say this, and both are equally valid. If mainstream media really takes this for what it is, uh, essentially a scientific consensus, I think that it could create uh, waves of change in how this is handled. And the, the 4% is really more of a preventive uh would be preventive spending, really. A lot of that is. You're going to end up spending a lot more than that uh, when you have to deal with how bad things really get. And it's not just the media. I mean, there are a lot of corporate uh, interests here. But they are, operate through the media, right? I mean, in other words, corp those corporate interests, well, how no, are people hearing about it? I mean, take, I mean, in our country, they don't operate through the media. They operate through uh, the political system. But okay, so give me an example of how, without touching the media, they are influencing uh, uh, people's opinion about this. Campaign funding. Camp I mean, they they make sure that the people making the rules are on their side. I see what you're saying. I mean, okay. But the media is important too. I mean, you, you can't you can't give that one percent uh, equal equal footing um, with the vast majority of scientists. Right, and as we've talked about many times, this mainstream media attitude of everything has its, uh, its opposing side and you have to have an equally valid counterpoint to every argument shouldn't happen with gay marriage. It really shouldn't happen with climate change, which is even more lopsided in opinion right. than is the issue of uh, marriage equality. It's, it's disappointing. We'll see if mainstream media actually starts handling this in an adult way.
Hey, Jay, this is Wade. Uh, first off, I want to say to Mara and the voicemail that she was responding to, I never once specified a bill. So what does she want me to read? It was a general comment. And that little bit of her voicemail was probably designed to make me look stupid. So um, I don't know what she wants me to read. I never specified anything. It was a general comment is all it was. As to why I own so many weapons, why I own assault weapons in particular, I own so many weapons more because it's a hobby, but why do I specifically own assault weapons? That's what I meant to you know, reason. <clears throat> I own them because I don't trust the government. And when I say I don't trust the government, I'm not talking tyranny. I don't think Obama's going to come down here and turn me into a communist. I'm talking about when there's not an, a police officer on his way. When they're all busy with other things, when they can't get to us. That's happened several times. It just happened with Hurricane Sandy. They're telling people, you're on your own. You can listen to 911 calls from Katrina. They're telling people, we can't get to you. We have nobody to send. And even if we did, we still can't get to you. The roads are gone. You're on your own. There's no cops coming. There's no law anymore. For that brief period of time, be it a day, a week, a month, there's no law. You think the National Guard's going to mobilize on an instant? You're going to be on your own for a couple of days. And it could be any number of things. I'm not going to go down the list. Don't look at the government's heart. Their hearts may be in the right place. Look at their capabilities. Chicago is tearing away flu patients because they don't have the capability in the hospitals to treat them. And this is just a, an above-average flu season. And it's already swamped. The government's already swamped. Now, this, this, you know, I'm not saying that the flu is going to lead to a societal breakdown, but what if it was worse? We all remember that little swine flu scare. What if it gets worse than that? Look at history. Societies go through turmoil sometimes. I'm going to be prepared. That's all an AR-15 is to me. It's an ounce of prevention. I've never been in a wreck, but I wear a seatbelt. I've never had a house fire, but I have a fire extinguisher. There's just an ounce of prevention. My AR-15 is in a gun safe right now. And I won't take it out unless it's to the range or I feel I need it. My home defense weapon is a Glock. That's the only thing I have out of my gun safe, out of all my guns. You know, Jay, you talk about climate change and about how the bad things that are going to happen and how I should really care about that, and I do. You're telling me that if we don't do something, we as humans are going to cease to exist. You think there's not going to be some conflict before that point? So you cannot own a gun if you choose to. As for me, I want to be a hard target. And that's when all those rounds I have and all those magazines, that's when they're getting loaded up. And that's when that weapon of war, which it is, why well, I bought it, that's when it's coming out and it's going to be used for what it is designed for. It's a tool designed to kill people. That's right. I'll admit it. Doesn't mean it ever will, though, if I don't choose to let it happen. But that's exactly what it's designed for. I picked it because it was what I was trained on in the Marine Corps. I know it. That's why I have it. Why I picked that one of all the ones I could have picked. That's all I really had to say. That's a very basic reason, or one of the main reasons I feel the need to own an assault weapon. And that's all I had to say. Thanks, Jeff. Hi, my name is Christine. I'm calling from St. Louis. I wanted to respond to something that Wade said today. Um, he was talking about the slippery slope in his voicemail and his how he believes in his heart of hearts that the slippery slope is real. And I'd like to challenge him to rethink that assertion. 
he sounds like a very thoughtful person that thinks things out. And if you come at an argument from a place where you believe that any compromise will lead to more compromise, so therefore you will make no compromise, you're negating the entire point of having any conversation at all. Um, coming out of the gate, refusing to compromise because it may lead to further conversation that may lead to further compromise is just no way to have a debate. Uh, thank you very much. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or an activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So in addition to the voicemail from Wade that we heard today, he, you know, he called in a couple of other times, basically along the same lines with some differences, but, uh, you know, in one of them, he referred to guns as an equalizer. And, you know, in the same sort of context, when you're in danger or in, in case of emergency, that a gun is an equalizer. And it made me think of uh, the, you know, arms races throughout all of human history. You know, if the only weapons anyone had were rocks and you have a, a slingshot, then you're the, the, you know, king of town. Uh, but as soon as someone invents arrows, then you're screwed. And... You know, so nation states do this. We've gone, uh, you know, we've had our arms race all the way up from zero to nuclear weapons over the course of human history. And, you know, we're at that point as of a few decades ago and started to think to ourselves, like, yeah, maybe we should take a step back a little bit. We started uh, tiptoeing in the direction of non-proliferation treaties and actually disarming some of those. And, you know, on the personal level, of course, it's worked out sort of similarly. You know, a few hundred years ago, all we had was muskets. Now we've worked our way up to assault rifles. And, you know, so Wade in the suburbs of Texas is concerned about climate change refugees, you know, marauding through his town. And that's not the craziest thing in the world to worry about, you know, that he's right. There are conflicts related to climate change. Uh, they're probably not going to come to, uh, you know, a, a, a country as developed as the United States anytime uh, drastically soon. But, you know, it's like I said, it's not the craziest thing to worry about. But getting to the point about equalization you know, only the very, very fringe elements would actually want to ban guns outright. It's the same way that the other side of the, you know, the absolute fringe would want absolutely no restrictions whatsoever. And this point was actually made on the show about uh, gun control by the comedian of all people, Lee Camp, saying, you know, in essence, if you think that individual people shouldn't be allowed to have nuclear weapons, then you believe in some sort of regulation. And now, so then we decided, okay, so we all believe in some sort of regulation. Now we just have to figure out where to put the marker. And so what my thought on, on sort of human civilization as a whole at the moment is that, you know, we need to take a step back from the dangers of nuclear weapons. We need to take a step back from the dangers of runaway climate change. And then on the personal level, it would be nice if we could follow suit and take a step back from absolute all-out war with killing machines as intense as assault rifles. Because if we were able to sort of ratchet it down a little bit, it's not that you wouldn't be able to defend yourself. It's that you would be able to defend yourself on an equilibrium with other people just with smaller weapons. That would be sort of the dream because I, I don't, you know, no one I know thinks it's possible to get rid of all guns. So as long as there are going to be some, then you just have to figure out where that balance is. 
And so I would like to pull it back so you don't need an absolute arsenal to defend yourself because marauding bands of climate change refugees won't have huge weapons either because they haven't been available for decades, uh, you know, in the future. So even if you have small guns to defend yourself, you'll still be equalized. And in the meantime, a ban on the highly destructive weapons means that fewer of those at least will fall into the hands of criminals because they steal them from good law-abiding people. But in the meantime, speaking of avoiding post-apocalyptic hellscapes altogether, big news has happened in my fundraising drive to fight climate change. I'm about to jump into freezing cold water in the middle of January. I'm trying to raise $2,000 for my trouble that will go to the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. They are a fantastic organization that fights climate change right in the Washington, D.C. area on the local and national level. And, uh, you know, they're fantastic. I used to work there, but I have no ties to them anymore. I just like to raise money for them when I can. But uh, a big event is happening. That There is yet another uh, matching funds drive going on. So if you've been hearing me talk about this, you've been thinking like, oh, I should get on that. This is really the time between 6 p.m. January 15th and 6 p.m. January 16th. If you're hearing this in that time, go right now, bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash J's plunge, J-A-Y-S, plunge, all one word, all lowercase, and donate because uh, whoever of, of all the people raising money uh, for this project Whoever raises the most within that 24-hour period, uh, that amount of money will be matched by you know matching donors. And on top of that, whoever sort of wins this little friendly competition to raise the most money in 24 hours, I think it's a gift certificate to somewhere that I'm forgetting, but sounded fun. And uh, and and so if I would win that, that would be excellent. And so this is what I have to say is that the the place where I'm jumping into the freezing cold water in the middle of January is about 15 miles away from my house. And so if I win this 24-hour fundraising drive, I will ride my bike, regardless of the weather, in the middle of January to the place where I will then jump into freezing cold water and then ride my bike home. So, you know, that's that's if... I win this and then I will like take pictures and I'll look really miserable and I'll show it on the website and talk about it on the show. So if you're, you know, hearing this or getting a message, I'll try to get it out in all sorts of ways. But if you, if you're hearing this and, and you can donate within that time period, definitely do it. And even if it's not time during that period, then, you know, go ahead and donate anyways, because I've raised about 35% of my goal. So, you know, it's, it's coming up in just a week and a half or so. Got to get on this. And thanks to everyone in advance for donating. So that's it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to everyone who supports this show, either by becoming a member, making donations, or by spreading the word of clips you particularly like through your social networks. All that can be done through the website. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com black and white you took a picture that wasn't right